Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gagino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome back to Pediatric Meltdown, and I'm so glad that you could join me today. My guest today is Dr. Damasio Dennis Flores. He is an assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing and an affiliated faculty at the program in Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies. He is a visiting professor at the Center for Research on AIDS at Yale's University School of Public Health. He leads several studies that investigates the role of parents in the sexual health education of adolescent youth who identify as LGBTQ. Through family-based interventions around inclusive parent-child communication, he focuses on the early provision of sexual health information attuned to the emergent attractions, behavior, and identities of LGBTQ adolescents to reduce this population's risk for HIV and STI infection and a negative mental health. Dr. Flores earned his Ph.D. from Duke University a master's in public health nursing leadership at Emory University, and a bachelor's in nursing from Kennesaw State University in Georgia. He completed his postdoctoral training at Penn Nursing in 2018. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Dennis Flores. Hey, Dennis, how are you? I am good. How are you, Leah? I'm good. Thank you so much for making time. This is so exciting. Our paths crossed in such an unexpected way, and I'm just delighted to have you. So thanks so much. Thank you for the invitation. Well, before we get started on our topic, I'd love to hear a little bit about people's journey. How did you get into this field? And maybe just give us a little bit of background. Sure thing. So I am a nurse by training. Right now, I'm an assistant professor in the School of Nursing at the University of Pennsylvania. And about 17 years ago, I went back to school for nursing. This was in Georgia as a second degree, and I was cognizant as a gay man, I figured I needed to do something that was more centered to the needs of my population. So throughout nursing school and my first jobs were really focused on what the health concerns are of men who have sex with men and other members of the community. And so I was a nurse, a bedside nurse at an HIV AIDS unit in Atlanta. We had 42 beds and these were all HIV AIDS cases. And on my off days, I'd be doing HIV SCI prevention work out in the community. And before I knew it, I was just going through grad school because I realized that a lot of the programming I wanted to initiate required training. And so I went and got my master's at Emory and then just went straight through my doctoral training at Duke. And my dissertation really was focused on figuring out how can we have parents provide inclusive information for their youth who are considering, questioning, or realizing for the first time that they might be gay. We have this process in the States called the sex talk or the conversation of the, of the birds and the bees. And typically what happens with that is that parents convey information based on their knowledge, based on how they came about. And unfortunately, I think, and I use that with air quotes, majority of parents are straight, heterosexual, and cisgender. And so how do you transmit that kind of background to your child who happens to be 
LGBTQ. And so that was where my passion was born in terms of facilitating conversations between straight parents with youth who don't necessarily identify as such. And then after PhD school, that was my dissertation. And then after PhD, I did my postdoc here at Penn in Philadelphia, and I've been faculty member since 2018. Well, it's very timely. You've been doing this a long time. It's not like LGBTQ issues are something new. I mean, people have identified as this for a long time. They just didn't tell anybody because it wasn't safe. Exactly. So you talk about the birds and the bees, and I think sex is a very loaded topic in the United States. It's sexual images are everywhere. They're in, you know, magazines selling products. They're in movies can get pretty hot and steamy. But when it comes to the reality of sex, like nobody really wants to talk about it as parents and kids, it feels awkward. So I remember my sex ed, there was a book, everything you wanted to know about sex, but were afraid to ask. Uh When I was 16, my mom handed me the book and my mom was pretty liberal, handed me the book and said, here, read this. And if you have any questions, don't ask me. (laughs) So some of the stuff was pretty like provocative. I don't know, wrap yourself in cellophane and greet your husband at the door naked. And I was just like, huh? I'm 16. I'm trying to process. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So much for that. But so why is this so difficult? Is the U.S., you know, are we unique? I mean, can we get to, I think you used a term which I love, slightly less awkward, just Mm -hmm. sex in general. Yeah, I love it that you phrased that question specifically bound to the U.S. because it is. U.S. history tells us that sexuality in general or the approach to it has always been just a tad bit on the shameful side of things. One thinks that polite society does not talk about sex. Anytime anything remotely close to it comes up, genteel women will be clutching their pearls because this is an issue that should not be coming up. And it's funny because in other places, in other societies, the reactions are not like that. They consider sex or sexuality or just growing up and the developmental milestones that accompany puberty as just as naturally occurring processes. And thus, the topics that arise are they're not off limits. They're something that people talk about. But here in the US, given the historical nature of how the country was founded and even just a lot of hangups that have accumulated through the centuries which is why it seems like it's difficult. Uh, There has not been very open conversations about it. Yeah, I love that hangups. And just for other people, it's not a big deal. No. And just we're just talking kind of heterosex, period. And yet, the what do they call it? The Madonna whore complex where, you know, you either you're (laughs) I don't own any pearls. Perhaps I should get some. But (laughs) so they're either pious, which means you only get pregnant somehow mysteriously, or you're putting it all out there and it's dangerous. You're a prostitute or whatever. And there's no in between like, you know, I'm a sexual being. So I think about conversations that I've had, you know, with kids in, in the office. And I've often said to the kids when I'm with them alone, that this topic of sex is awkward. But imagine your parents having sex, and then that elicits the ew, 
like <laughs> la 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 la, you know, fingers in the ears and funny story about that. My daughter will probably blush, but when she was like 19, she walked in on my husband and I and it following that was her screaming, <laughs> running upstairs. She called her sister. My husband and I w- made our way outside after buttoning up and we were dying laughing. It was so funny. She was so distraught. She's, it's burned into my brain. I can't get it out. And I said, well, it's not like the neighbor. Oh, I love it. Yes. No, it's like, are you should be glad that we like each other. But, you know, this this idea that we're sexual beings, no matter our age, and that people in their 80s have sex and, mm-hmm. you know, kids have sex too. And, you know, as a parent, I think, we worry about our kids getting pregnant or raped or getting an STI. And so it's kind of like, can you just wait till you're out of the house so I don't have to think about it? So what about those conversations and the ew factor? Yeah, I think to what you said earlier, thank you for sharing that story, by the way. We laugh about it now, but I can already imagine your daughter and how really mortifying that experience Oh my God, she was dying. Dying. Yeah. How can we make it slightly less awkward. Well, let's tackle that first. Really removing stigma and around sexuality is the first step to treat this issue of sex as a regular innate human drive, pretty much like appetite or thirst. It then moves us from this place of where it's a taboo to one that's more commonplace and familiar and relatable. And in so many ways, getting over that very initial hesitation, I feel is the biggest hurdle. And it's obviously easier said than done. I think the more that we gain experience and comfort in talking about it, hopefully translates to us being more comfortable and having discussions that are easier through time. I can imagine parents like, you know, if you're going to talk about sex, now my kid's going to have sex and then I have to deal with all the dangers of sex. Yeah. What about that myth? So that, uh, thank you for using the word myth, because that's exactly what it is. From the research I've done from a few years back, we've looked at studies from the last 40 years of research on parent-child sex communication, and there is not any evidence to support that if you broach a discussion about sexuality or sex with your child, it gives them permission or a green light that it automatically somehow translates to kids having wild, raunchy sex wherever. It does not happen. But it's a fear that keeps people from having that conversation, which I guess in some ways it makes sense. If you approach it and then talk about condoms, you feel like you're implicitly giving permission. But really what it does is it provides boundaries and guidance on a stage or on a process that kids have never really had any kind of guidance or instructions before. And I feel like that's where the role of parents are very crucial. But yeah, it's a persistent myth, myth and also an excuse that Mm. people use. And so in my work and in the work of other folks in this space, I love it because when you start having that one first conversation and then parents are feel like they're being given permission to finally talk about it. 
And then it's like uh, the gates are open and people can't stop talking <laughs> because they always have this excuse of sorts or this barrier that prevented them from having conversations. But yeah, to the question of can we be okay as sexual beings? Well, that is really the question of the century, I feel like for American parents. We've talked about unlike other parents in other parts of the world where they don't have the same hangups. American parents are always depicting sexuality in very antagonistic terms, gatekeeping. There's a lot of dread and fraught outcomes that are always at the forefront of parents' minds. And so it's this fear-based orientation that shows up at home when parents are unable to help their kids find developmentally appropriate resources. And then if we go beyond the home, this kind of hang-up or these kinds of barriers also show up in the national debates that we're having. For example, you know, if you look at Florida and all these other states, there's this brouhaha saying, don't say gay, part of the continuum of discussions about sexuality and what is deemed proper or appropriate. You know, we've got these contentious policies, legislation that aims to silence just mere discussions about other people in society. And here we're talking about sexual and gender diverse individuals. So that's all part of the continuum of gatekeeping, which really I feel like in so many ways is such an American trait now or characteristic. Yeah, I think a lot of it's fear that somehow this something bad is going to happen if you say it, you Mm -hmm. know, that you, you know, if I ask you, you know, have you had thoughts about sex with same sex and that somehow I'm going to make you gay, you know, (laughs) or if you look at a book, It's crazy. If you read about murder, it's not like I'm going to go out and kill someone. And yet sometimes it gets on a level that is just irrational and, you know, hysteria. Well, using that same logic that you just put, uh, I mean, the world society is very heteronormative. As you said earlier on media splashed around, they're selling cars, they're selling drinks using sex. And so all these LGBTQ kids from an early age see heterosexual sex, but that does not translate to them turning straight. Right. Well, maybe you can we can dive in now past the heteronormative and maybe you can define that a little bit into what does inclusive mean and this idea that there's only one way and there might be other ways, but we're not going to talk about it. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. Yes, the status quo in society, really, if we're looking at the media that folks consume, the discussions that dominate around the dinner table, when we say heteronormative, the premise is that everybody is straight or most people are straight. And so if you're not, there's something off or there's something wrong with that. And when I talk about inclusive discussions, that really is a call, a plea for people to consider the fact that, you know what, we actually are all on the continuum or on a spectrum. And there are people who do have same-sex attractions, behaviors, or identities. And all those three domains, by the way, they're not mutually exclusive. Uh, You can identify as straight, but engage in same-sex behavior. And also, this is a good reminder of sorts that not everybody identifies as cisgender or with the gender that they were born in. And so when we say, let's consider inclusive discussions, it's more of recognizing that just because I'm not a member of that group doesn't mean they don't exist or negating the fact of their existence, right? So yeah, especially this is quite crucial for LGBTQ kids because like all adolescents, that's the time period when you're figuring out who you are and you're so insecure and you're so afraid 
But if you don't ever hear about yourself or your potential self, you feel that insecurity is magnified even more. And so if only every so often they hear something that acknowledges that demographic or that population, maybe that's the one thing that keeps them from thinking I'm so weird or something is wrong with me. And now I'm not just talking about HIV and STI prevention, I'm talking about mental health. Uh, about depression, about anxiety, even suicidality amongst this population, right? So inclusivity in so many ways addresses a lot of health outcomes for, for this particular youth population. So what about the population that says this is wrong, it isn't in God's plan, and this is these behaviors are unacceptable and we can't talk about it and we have to shame this group or do some conversion therapy to make you like me? Yeah, um, I, I don't know how to address them, I would say. They're the ones who don't show up at my workshop. <laughs> I'd like to recognize the fact that there is a variety or a continuum of belief systems, and people are allowed to think how they think, but if it negates the presence of another, I don't know how sound that is. Okay. And I really don't want to badmouth or badger other people's belief systems. It's more of an appeal to parents who want to be cognizant about raising kids who are the most balanced and healthy. And so thinking about that neighbor who is denigrating LGBTQ folks, that's a different conversation with them. But I think in the family, providing a supportive, accepting, and inclusive context is the most that you can do. And in so many ways, research has shown most effective so that when your kids finally come out of the house and they're confronted by those folks, that they have the mindset, they have the strategies to deal with it in a manner that supports who they are. Right. It's that you've been affirmed by the people that matter the most to you, exactly. your family and your loved ones. And we're, we're sort of girding you up to, to go in the world because all of us may face things where people don't like us or like our mm -hmm. beliefs, but we're solid enough in our footing. And Renee Brown, who I love, talks a lot about humans by nature care about and value other humans. But if you can dehumanize another individual, now you can, the word you use, denigrate, because they're less than. Mm -hmm. And and so I think a lot of language is focused on that dehumanization. And my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that that there is this increased risk of suicidality in the LGBTQ plus community, particularly with transgender youth. And it's not because they're gay or trans in and of itself. It's because of the hatred or the stigma or the abandonment that is associated. Do I have that yeah. right? Oh, totally spot on to, to the early part of your comment. It's really creating a secure sense of self. That mm. is the main task, I feel like, of adolescence and the main challenge for parents, whether or not your kid is LGBTQ or straight or cisgender. It's just really arming them with enough skills and security to know that they're fully formed and that they're valued the moment they get out of your house. But I love that point to what you say. And this is part of the conference that you and I attended last week. I had to remind folks that being LGBTQ in itself, it does not bode or translate to negative health outcomes. It doesn't have to be the case. But it's these social factors, the social determinants of health, that surround that kid, that surround the family, that 
flavors, the school setting that they are enrolled in, or the religious denomination that you know they subscribe to. It's these constellation of factors that if they were not affirming, if they were negating the emergent identities of these youth, will result in negative health. And vice versa, in contrast, if you have social determinants of health, like a school system that has inclusive sex ed, a denomination that celebrates, not just accepts, but celebrates the diversity of sexual and gender orientation and identity, or if the media you consume is positive and does not denigrate members of this group, then you can expect that the young person will come out of that experience of puberty or adolescence much more appreciative of their sense of self and quite secure. It's interesting when you're talking about media that depicts individuals, whether they're different race. I mean, you you see a lot more commercials now that depict people of color um, because, you know, our population is 50 percent are not white. And, you know, so there's that. And the other. So I remember thinking like the Hallmark commercials that show two men and, you know, you sort of take notice. But I think if it was over time, you wouldn't take notice anymore. It's just, huh, it was just another commercial about cards. Right. Yeah. It's the classic line that says representation matters. And it does. Mm. When you see yourself depicted on TV, on whatever screen, if you're being considered as a valid, fully functioning person, a member of society and valued, it really speaks a lot to young folks about their own potentials. Being a person of color myself in academia going through the motions here in the States as I was in my nursing education in grad school. There were very few role models in terms of the people who looked like me. But when I found them, it was very empowering because it gave me permission to imagine a world of possibilities. And that's the same thing that applies with youth, whether it be you're identifying with somebody on screen based on common color of your skin or based on a mutual sense of sexual orientation or gender identity. And I love it that there does seem like more representation in the media, more conversations, because again, it's not taboo. It shouldn't be taboo. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that, you know, really takes it to heart what this is about. And I know you've done a lot of research talking to kids. So when you talk to LGBTQ plus youth, what do they say if you ask them, what do you wish your parents had said? How do you wish those conversations had gone? Yeah. Oh, Leah, you and I can have like several hours of conversation about this because that is exactly the kind of work that we've been doing out of Penn Nursing the last five years. I think some major themes around this, what do you wish your parents had told you? First off, without getting too technical, we provide our participants across three or four different studies a listing of all the topics that have been reported in the literature when it comes to what parents and kids talk about at home. And we gave it to them, each participant, and said, what would you recommend future parents talk about with future LGBTQ youth? And for the most part, they all say, use all of those same topics, but put it within the context of it's not just for heteronormative sexual relationships or relationships in general. And you need to be mindful about during elementary stage, the first discussions really need to be just actual things because that's the way they think is more concrete. It's a yes or a no, or it's just naming a body part or just, you know, giving the basic mechanisms of something. 
But the important part about having conversations in elementary school is that you're normalizing these discussions. You're paving the path to an open relationship where if a young person has a question, they have no qualms about going to the parent to ask that question. And unfortunately, the reality in this country, as you've noted earlier, is that we don't have the most open cyclical dyadic conversations. It's taboo. If something sexy ever comes up on TV, then you see the mom glaring at the kid saying, this is not for polite society. We don't talk about these things, which is contrary to what these kids who participated in our research have said. You just need to establish at an early age these open lines of communication. And then as you progress through the next few years in middle school and in high school, you capitalize on those very basic principles that you've talked about and increase that complexity based on what their questions are, based on their emerging experiences until when they reach high school, then you can have full on debates or conversations about the merits of some behavioral issues, such as, I don't know, going out on a date, when to have engaged in sex for the first time, how to deal with technology and the things that you find there as as a person on social media. And so the non-surprising part is that most of the topics LGBTQ kids wish from their they heard from their parents are almost the same as what heterosexual kids have also said, but just asking, accommodating for the fact that perhaps your child might not end up with somebody of the opposite sex, but that there is a possibility they can turn out to be LGBTQ or transgender. So that leads me into where I wanted to go next. And what does that conversation look like? I think about parents will frequently ask, they've got a two-year-old who's humping the furniture Mm. and they're alarmed. And, you know, it's easy for me to say, hey, they just figured out this feels good. And they don't think of this as a right or wrong behavior. It just feels good. And I think you can help them understand that It's like picking your nose or going to the bathroom. It's not good or bad. It's just, yeah, some of it's private and you don't necessarily going to do it in the classroom, but, you know, it's a private thing. And people seem to be okay with that. And then there's sexual exploration. I mean, a lot of five-year-olds are like, hey, show me yours and I'll show you mine. Yep. And then people start worrying about good touch, bad touch. And then that conversation comes up. And then at some point it's now this is child abuse. This is sexual abuse. And so there's there's that kind of line between, okay, this is normal and now it's not. Now it's really bad. So if we're helping parents facilitate those conversations from a very early age, just so again, it's normalizing it, what would that sound like for that six, seven, eight-year-old? Yeah, great question. And I feel like the answer is already in the question, in the framing of your question. So The non-surprising part is that most of the topics LGBTQ kids wish from their they heard from their parents are almost the same as what heterosexual kids have also said, but just asking, accommodating for the fact that perhaps your child might not end up with somebody of the opposite sex, but that there is a possibility they can turn out to be LGBTQ or transgender. Using that example of privacy, when I think overall, one of the biggest concerns parents have is for their child's security. Uh, There is a concern that you want to make sure your child grows up healthy and that they won't get in trouble. As you said earlier, they're not taken advantage of and rape 
is something uh, that has been on the media for the last few years. And so how do you start off those conversations? Again, starting with very basic principles early on for that five-year-old, six-year-old about, and you said this already, what is good touch? What is bad touch? What does privacy mean? What are the things that you need to do by yourself? And then later on, a few years later, capitalizing on that, reminding them, hey, let's revisit that conversation. Or do you remember our talk about X, Y, and Z? And then now you're going to talk about what this personal space looks like. Or now that you have the power to give permission for other people to hug you or perhaps consider what are the things that you're okay to do, building on that privacy and now going to permission or personal space. And then later on, really tackling what consent looks like. And so suddenly you've laid out the groundwork for an initial conversation, a three-year conversation that then without any issue talks about consent in when they're in high school about you need to make sure that you affirm what you're going to agree to engage in with your boyfriend, with your girlfriend, or you're quite clear about what you don't like and where the boundaries are. So you might not think about the conversation about consent in high school, something you just did in high school. It actually started way earlier during that privacy, during that good touch, bad touch conversation. So In so many ways, it's, well, I shouldn't say it's not rocket science because really a lot of parents find this to be a debilitating topic or conversation. Like, ah, I don't even know what to do. And the fact is because from their own experience, they didn't have a parent who had these conversations with them. Unlike you who had a mom who brought that book and said, here's a book, at least here's a resource for you to use. Even if she said, don't ask me for any follow-up questions, there was an attempt. There was an effort. There was guidance to you. Uh, And it's breaking that silence. I think the question here now is how do you break the silence and make your own parenting be the one that initiates a cycle of fruitful conversations? So I really love that. And I'm thinking about, you know, facilitating this conversation as our job because we talk about all kinds of things. And I was also thinking about a conversation I had with Ken Ginsburg about the delight of teenagers and this idea that children are super learners, they're explorers, and sexual exploration and thinking is just part of that. So if we reframe where we're coming from, then maybe it's not so hard. But having said that, do you think that there are books that parents can be reading with children to have those conversations? I mean, I think about the one like Everybody Poops. You're just talking about, yeah, pooping's pretty normal. We do it in the bathroom, but you know. So are there other books? I think of one my daughter, when she was teaching school, used. It was about two penguin fathers. And oh my God, it was the sweetest story. And I know a lot of schools now are trying to ban these books, but okay, I can do what I want in my own home. So what are some thoughts on resources for parents that we can offer them? Yeah, great question. And I think that's also another way to lessen the stakes for parents who want to initiate the conversation is that you need to stop thinking of yourself or the expectation of the parent as the expert, as the all-knowing person who is there to uh, provide information to somebody who has no idea whatsoever. I think shifting that a little into thinking of the process as how can you as a parent initiate the conversation and perhaps learn alongside your young person who happens to be LGBTQ. I think that is a more friendlier approach and less daunting for parents. And utilizing books, utilizing resources to your question is a great way 
for, for a common task for the family. And so one of the books that I love, I, well, actually my favorite author, Corey Silverberg has a series of books and sex is a funny word is one of them. And it's a graphic book, almost like a comic series, very nicely illustrated and walks parents through a variety of topics that are inclusive and not just for families with LGBTQ youth, but with all youth. I think Corey Silverberg has three books, if I'm not mistaken. And this is a good place to start. When you go on Amazon, and I'm, this is not a plug for them, but when you do, when you put in some book titles or authors, there invariably comes up other recommendations. And I think that's one other good way of sifting through the resources that we have to see if there's one in particular that meets your family's needs. I like that, that we're not necessarily the experts, us included. And I think there's lots of things that physicians and nurse practitioners and MAs and nurses can do to broaden our horizons and not be so scared of this sort of other that might be like dark and who knows what they're doing kind of thing, but just normalize that people feel the way they do and love who they love and are attracted to who they're attracted to. It's just how it is. Gosh, we need to just get over it. And we just make such a big deal about it. And it just makes it complicated. I think about Schitt's Creek, which is one of my favorite shows on so many levels that, you know, the son David is gay and has a love interest. And it is just, it's so beautiful. And I love at the very end of the series, there is a conversation with the actors. And one of the comments that really struck me was, the show just normalizes it to the point that it's not a thing. Mm-hmm. Nobody makes a big deal about, oh, David's gay and he has a gay lover and this is weird. And I mean, they're just like, oh, this is your boyfriend and you love him and you're going to marry him. I'm sorry. I'm hoping I'm not giving any spoilers, but and it's beautiful. It's lovely. And it's not scary, icky or weird. It's just about a very quirky, funny family. Yep. And that's at the root of the success of Shit's Creek, I think, is the fact that it makes something unfamiliar familiar for people who might not have had the benefit of having an LGBTQ family member. It gives you permission to learn more vicariously through watching the series. And whether this be your generation's Shit's Creek, or maybe 20 years ago, it was Will and Grace, or maybe right. before that, when Ellen came out in her sitcom for the first time, there are moments in popular media where suddenly this once vague notion of the others suddenly become not so others or less familiar because they're right there and they're giving us permission to live with them, laugh with them, learn. I thought from Shit's Creek, the anecdote you were going to say was about that scene where David is talking to, I, and I forget her name about the different types of wine that he enjoys, that sometimes he likes rosé and sometimes he likes uh, red wine and other kinds of wines to show about his fluidity or... uh, Oh, funny, because he does have some scenes where he's attracted to women. Yep, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I forgot it, but that's very funny. So are there any other movies that come to mind that are favorites for you? Oh, Yes, but I feel like I'm going to be dating myself because these were movies from when I was coming of age. But right now on Netflix, Bad Mouth is a great series. It's an animated series really focused on 
discussions about sexual, not sexual health per se, but just issues during adolescence. Sex Education, I think also on Netflix, is a wonderful series that features a therapist mom and her son who's providing unofficial therapy for his peers in high school. It's also smartly written, very funny. And these are just two shows. And if you start watching those, soon enough, the algorithm will be providing you with similar movies or content along those same lines. So oh. those are two great starters because we all will be binge watching. It's no longer <laughs> the one episode a week, but right. if you have a good weekend, a free weekend. Those are two highly recommended series. Well, and I think those are things sometimes you can watch with your kids and have nice conversations. You know, she was um, having sex with him. They really didn't have a conversation about, did you have a condom? And uh -huh. so what do you think about that? So I think that there are ways you can have those conversations. The thing about watching movies is that you're looking somewhere else you might be sitting next to. So it takes a little of the, this is a big talk to, hey, we're just having conversation and pass the popcorn. Yeah. And that has shown up in our research as well. Some of the fondest memories of our participants is not the explicit approval that they receive from parents in terms of, yes, my child, I love you, whatever you are, or the fact that you're LGBTQ. Nobody has explicitly said that. But it's really more of those moments when a child is watching with his dad or his mom and something affirming but funny comes up. And then the mom is giddy or clapping or is also rooting for the underdog who happens to be LGBTQ. Those are powerful messages in the moment that signify that, you know what, I am rooting for this team or you, you don't have to worry about me someday when it's your turn to come out because I get it or this is not a barrier you'll have to face with me. So I love your point about watching together with your child. Well, and it doesn't have to be a big, heavy conversation. It could be something light. It could be something on the fly. And I think that, again, that takes the pressure off like, oh, my God, we have to have the talk. We have to have the birds and the bees because otherwise, you know, she's going to get pregnant or, you know, they're going to get STIs if I don't have this big, heavy talk and please sit down and the kids are already in agony. I remember having a conversation one time with my daughter in the car. Of course, they're a captive audience. And she probably was in middle school. And I said something about, hey, have they talked about condoms in health class? And it immediately was like, mom. I said, well, sometimes they like use bananas to demonstrate. It was just agony. But, you know, at least she heard my mom's willing to talk about condoms. Yeah, I think capitalizing on teachable moments. And I think what you just uh, described for us is one of those opening up opportunities for teachable moments. And going back to your example earlier of even if it's just a commercial, the Hallmark card commercial with two men, uh, you know, who are together and just saying, oh, how cute is that couple? Just a little statement and support already speaks volumes right there. Or you being explicit with your child in the car about these are the options, biomedical options for staying safe. Those are different examples. And yet both of them affirm or normalize what is perceived commonly as this very daunting task, but you're doing it in ways that are a little bit more doable. Plus, it's funny. There's <laughs> nothing better than making your kid uncomfortable. And there's that too. Yeah, yeah. So a book that I absolutely love called This Is How It Always Is. 
And it's about a family that has a young child that identifies, really wants to be a girl, was identified, you know, sexual identity or I'm sorry. Gender identity. Think, well, it was assigned sex at birth. Got to work on my, my appropriate language. Assigned sex at birth is male, but this child wants to be a girl, Poppy. And it's all about like, when do we let the school know how the siblings react? I mean, it's kind of a reality. And I loved it too, because the mom's an emergency room doctor. So there is that bent too. But it's a lovely story about a family who loves their child and is trying to help them in a world that isn't always safe or kind. But within the context of the family, they love this child. The siblings get kind of annoyed because it's making their life difficult. But, you know, so those are real, those are real things. And it's a lovely book. So I recommend that and I'll put it in the show notes. Well, it's at the end of our conversation. If you had a clinical pearl or the greatest wish that you had for listeners, what would it be? Yeah. My Christmas wish is that clinicians, wherever they practice, if you're ever in front of a parent or in front of the child or the dyad themselves, opening up that conversation or giving them the permission to start talking about it, it is always powerful. If you're with the parent, asking them if they've already initiated conversations as a gentle reminder goes a long way in making sure that parents are reminded, oh, there's, yes, there's the expectation or there's acknowledgement that my words to my child are important. And hopefully it will move them from a place of, I don't know, contemplation to actual initiation of the behavior. Or if you're in front of a child, whether they be TQ or otherwise, asking them if they have a question and being that resource who is affirming and inclusive because they might have a lot of things at their disposal and they think these are legitimate resources such as things online or their peers. But if it's somebody that they respect and somebody that they know is an expert opening up conversations with them, it then allows them to start having mature or trusting discussions and that perhaps it would plant the seed that for their next visit, they can save up some of their questions so that the doctor or that clinician can verify for them whether what they think is true is actually accurate. Yeah, just constantly checking in and saying, how has it been since the last time? Not being heteronormative in your language, not asking a male presenting adolescent, do you have a girlfriend? It doesn't have to be the case. And saying out loud, do you have a partner? Is there somebody that you're seeing? And perhaps even cueing parents to use that same kind of language, not gendered, but more inclusive. Uh, you know, these are just little tidbits that can signal to members of the dyad that conversations can be had. It would be nice to be had at home and even facilitated from the clinical setting. And I'm thinking about other things that clinicians can do. The simple thing, which probably takes some practice, is, hi, I'm Dr. Gugino. I use she, her, hers. Oh, yes. That in and of itself might be perfect. just a perfect. Of course, I can imagine some parents saying, why are you doing that? That's weird. I don't want you to talk with my kid about those things. I mean, there is, I mean, I think that's what we fear. I put it in the same category for me, like talking about immunizations with people who don't believe in immunizations. It mm -hmm. makes me anxious, but maybe I have to get over that. Wearing a rainbow button, having posters, things like that could be cues or codes that, you know, it's all good here. You got it. Those are the mindful ways that you can establish a welcoming atmosphere in your clinical setting. Having 
a restroom that is unisex or having materials in the waiting room that, you know, are also queer oriented. It's those little things that count and signify to both the child and to the parent that this is a safe space. And I know people will roll their eyes when we say safe space, but it really does matter because until we are able to address the health disparities that are quite well-known, long-standing, that put LGBTQ youth at more negative outcomes. These are things that we need to keep working on. Yeah, well, I think you've said that beautifully. I'm going to include several things in the show notes that we've been talking about. But if people want to find more about what you're doing, is there a website? Is there someplace else they should look to get more? Yes. I mean, I wish I had my own show like you do, Mia. But... I'm on Twitter. I'm pretty prolific on there. So it's at DFloresRN. And also they can check out my, if you just Google my name, Dalmasio Dennis Flores, it'll lead you to my pen nursing faculty profile and my manuscripts, articles that we come up with are always on there. Uh, And people can email me. Well, thank you. I appreciate your time and these really I mean, lovely insight. And it's fun. I mean, it doesn't have to be so heavy all the time. I think that's the joy for me working with kids is I get to laugh every day because they say such creative things that take you, not take you aback in a bad way, but catch you off guard. And so there can be joy in exploration and we shouldn't be afraid. Most definitely. Thank you so much again for the invitation. I, it's been a pleasure. Well, thank you and take care. Bye. Okay, so this was a really fun episode to do. I may have divulged a few too many TMI type of uh, commentaries, but hey, you know, I was getting in the spirit. So here are my takeaways. Number one, thank you for this really compelling and, as I said, super fun conversation. Number two, Americans don't like to talk about sex. Sex is associated with shame, indecency, and is not polite. We are hung up about the conversation and at the same time inundated with lots of sexual content based on the premise that sex is heteronormative. In other words, just for heterosexuals. Hmm leaves out a lot of folks. Number three, can we just be less awkward about sex? It is normal human experience and an innate human drive, just like hunger and fatigue. We need to remove the stigma around the conversation, but how? Number four, normalize sex. People have it, all people, and talking about sex doesn't make kids have sex or give permission. It's just a conversation about human behaviors and respect and love for others. Number five, the status quo is that all or most are straight, and instead the message can be that there is a continuum of identity. Kids are insecure already, and stigma just makes it worse. Number six, a supportive family is an inoculation for LGBTQ plus youth, creating a secure sense of self, that you are valued and fully formed. This is our job as adults. Number seven, normalize the discussion over time with attention to child development. Masturbation may happen at a very young age. Exploration and curiosity are common and normal. Then we have to introduce good touch, bad touch, privacy, consent, and consideration as kids get older. When is the right time to have sex? What are the risks? How do you maintain safety? These should all be just matter-of-fact 
regular conversations. Number eight, for parents, it's okay not to be an expert. Use other resources like books. And he listed Corey Silverberg as a resource. Movies, art, music that convey open ideas that are age appropriate. Watch Shit's Creek with your teen, for example. Comment on positive messaging like the gay couple in the Hallmark commercial. The inclusive clothing line at Target. It matters. Number nine, for clinicians, open the conversation with your own pronouns. Hi, I'm Dr. Gugino. I use she, her, hers pronouns. This equals a code for, it's okay to talk about this here. You can use rainbow buttons, posters, have unisex bathrooms, have LGBTQ appropriate literature. Ask, do you have a partner versus do you have a boyfriend or girlfriend? Don't assume. Number 10, let kids know that the world is full of possibilities that includes them, all of them. That's it, just that. And number 11, check out Dr. Flores on Twitter and online when you search Delmasio Dennis Flores, and I'll put that all in the show notes. And check out the list of books and resources that he recommends. Thanks so much for what you do. I mean, sometimes this stuff requires kind of a mind shift and a willingness to look at the world with a little bit different lens that might be out of our comfort zone. So get awkward and be okay with that. Get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Take care and keep doing what you're doing for kids. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown, and I hope you found it as interesting as I did. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero. If you would like to reach out to me, you can find me on Facebook at Dr. Leah Gugino and on Instagram at Pediatric Meltdown. I would love listener ideas and suggestions and hope to hear from you. Thank you so much and I hope you will join me next week.